This is the last thing you want to hear probably from a guy who's preaching. There goes the mic. But um, we've got a lot to cover today. But I want to be sensitive to your time. I know there's basketball to watch and all that kind of stuff. Um, So today's message, we're just going to kind of dive right in. So so that means this. It means there will be no stories to begin the message this morning of mission trips and blind men telling me how attractive my wife is. If, If you were here last week, you get that. If you weren't, that is completely random, doesn't make sense to you. But um, we talked about that last week, and I had a lot of comments afterwards, so that was fun. But today's message is a little different, and I'm not sure if, if you're a note taker, but as I was putting the message together this week, I thought this message really lends itself for those people you know, who'd like to take notes. So here's what I've done. If you look underneath your seats, there is an outline. There's a pen there, hopefully. If not, there are some more in the back. If you're a note taker, I think you're going to want to take some notes today because we're going to look at some really important truth as we continue in our series we started last week called What If God Was One of Us? And like we said last week, the basic premise of this series is <clears throat> something the Apostle John wrote at the beginning of his gospel. And John, if you remember, John is somebody who was an eyewitness to the life and ministry of Jesus. John saw firsthand Jesus bring people back to life. He saw him make the lame walk, the blind seat. John was there for that. John was somebody who had a front row seat when Jesus gave these amazing teachings. John was there, and towards the end of John's life, John was thinking about all he had experienced, all he had seen in the life of Christ, and was thinking about writing this down, and he begins his gospel kind of with a preamble, if you will, and he's trying to paint this picture of who this Jesus was, who he spent this time with, how his life, John's life really, had a before Jesus and an after Jesus. How did he describe Jesus? And here's the verse we looked at last week, and we'll look at it again. John 1, verse 14. Here's what John wrote, trying to explain to us Jesus. John said this. He said the word, which last week we said is just like a beautifully poetic name for Jesus. He said the word became flesh and made his dwelling, which literally means that word dwelling, that he camped out, that he pitched a tent, or like how Eugene Peterson in the message says it, he says that Jesus moved into the neighborhood, that he became flesh, made his dwelling among us. So what we're doing in this series is we're saying, okay, If God came as one of us, if he came among us, just a stranger on the bus, if that's who God was, you might be singing that song the rest of the day, sorry about that. But if God came as one of us, here's the question, why? Why did he come? Why did Jesus come as one of us and live among us? And I mean, if his only purpose was to die for our sins, how long would that take? Right? I mean, don't misunderstand. You can't understand who Jesus was apart from the cross. You can't understand who Jesus was apart from the fact that he came to die, to redeem us, to bring us new life and hope and freedom. You can't understand Christ apart from the cross. And we're going to talk about the cross on Easter, two weeks from today. Just two weeks from today is Easter. We're going to look at, at the story of Easter, really, how it's intersected with the lives of two people who are part of Living Church. Just some incredible stories of how the gospel of grace of Jesus Christ reached into these lives. You're going to want to be here for that. But there are some other reasons Jesus came, some important reasons when it comes to following him. Last week, we talked about how Jesus came to show us, really kind of to demonstrate how to love one another. 
And it seems simple, but Jesus kind of put his own twist on it. And he said, here's how I want you to love people. I want you to love people just the way that I loved you. And Jesus said, the way people will know that if you're following me really isn't if you only listen to Christian music or if you, you know, have a gold cross or if you wear Christian t-shirts or have an ichthus on the back of your car. Jesus said, it's bigger than that. People will know if you love me if you love them. Jesus was basically saying the best way or the truest way to show the world that you love him isn't really by memorizing what he said, but it's by doing what he said. And last week, we said one of the reasons Jesus came was to show us how to love one another. And today, we're going to look at another reason. It's, it's a huge thing Jesus tried to constantly bring about, to open our minds to, and it's the idea that Jesus came to show us the Father. Now, this is huge because there are some things about God that we will never know or never understand apart from Jesus. Nature won't get you there, Religion or religious systems won't get you there. We'll see that kind of later today. But Jesus showed up as God in the flesh and said, I don't want this to be theoretical. I don't want to bring you a new set of rules, another list of to-dos. But I came as God in the flesh so you could see your father. This is incredibly important. Do you remember Philip, when Philip came to Jesus? And Philip basically said, Jesus, just show us the father. Just show us who the Father is. And Jesus kind of just kind of looked around and said, ta-da. You know, he said, you're looking at him. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is saying, watch me, and you'll get this new insight into who your heavenly Father is. So today what I want us to do is I want us to take a look at a story in the life of Jesus, which I think just happens to possibly be the funniest story in the Bible. You might not think the Bible has much humor in it, in it, but I think you will after today. What I want us to do today is just kind of walk through this story and kind of discover and watch for how Jesus consistently shows us the Father, kind of sheds new light on who the Father is. So if you brought a Bible, we're going to be in the Gospel of John, chapter 9. You have a Bible app, John chapter 9, and this is where our story begins. And watch how Jesus starts to show us who the Father is in the story. We'll learn some important truths here today. Here's how our story begins. It says, as he went along, meaning Jesus, as Jesus went along, he saw a blind man from birth. His disciples were with him, and they asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Which is interesting, because here's what I expect and maybe what you would expect. If the disciples are walking with Jesus, and they come upon a blind man, isn't the first thing you would expect them to say is, hey, Jesus, do your Jesus thing here and, and give him his sight back. I mean, isn't that what they should have said? Instead, instead, they see a blind man, they see a beggar blind from birth, and they think, this is a great opportunity to engage in some really deep theological discussion. That's what they do. They see the blind man, and they, and they have an, an assumption here which is just incredibly bad theology. And the assumption was basically this. Their assumption when they see the blind man is, okay, Jesus, This guy's been blind since he was a kid, so somebody must have done something wrong. Somebody, he or his parents, somebody's messed up. There has to be a reason why he's blind, and the reason has to be because somebody sinned. It's got to be somebody's fault. That was the assumption. And and, and this kind of thinking, I think, 
has been around for a long time. In fact, I, I, I know it still kind of pervades our thought today. I know as a pastor before, you met with people, and there's this thought. Something will be going on in their life that they never anticipated, something bad, and eventually they want to know, is this because God's trying to get back at me? Is this because of something that I've done? Maybe it's, you know, you can't find a job, or you're in a dead-end job, so you think, is that because I fill in the blank? Or maybe I'm sick, I have this chronic illness. Is, is that because I, I'm struggling financially, I just can't seem to get ahead. Is that because I, I can't seem to find that one special person or my marriage is a mess. Is the real reason behind that because I? Do you ever wonder if your suffering, whatever it is, is your fault? Maybe not even something you've done recently. Maybe, maybe it's high school. I mean, high school, those, those years, just kind of best to forget them. Or maybe it was college. Those years are kind of a blur. You're just so thankful there wasn't Facebook back then, right? But, I mean, you think, I did something back then, and finally, you know, it's coming to roost. God is, God's paying me back. You ever wonder if your suffering is your fault? It's, it's, it's not a new way of thinking. The disciples, the disciples, thought this. Many religious people, and today, still think that if you're suffering, if something is wrong, all you've got to do is keep looking more closely, and you're going to find the reason, and the reason is going to be because you've sinned. And while behavior certainly has consequences, not saying that, you can't assume, and you shouldn't assume, that God is just looking to pay you back for whatever you've done wrong. The disciples, they saw God that way, and they said, Jesus, tell us, who sinned here? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. And look at how Jesus starts to show them the Father. Verse 3, Jesus answers their question by saying, neither. This is great. Jesus is basically saying, you have the wrong assumption. You have the wrong starting point. He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. And then, look closely to what's coming next. Jesus introduces us and his audience to a big idea about God, a big idea about the Father. Look at what he says next. He says, but this happened, the fact that he's been blind since birth, so that. This happened, so that. And this has the power, what he's about to say, to just kind of rock your theology. Because Jesus is saying, you are looking for the cause of why this man has been blind his entire life. And you think the cause of his suffering is because of his sin. And Jesus is saying, I'm about to give you a brand new category for suffering, a brand new category for pain. I'm about to give you a category that pain has a purpose. Jesus is about to show us that the reason sometimes that why we suffer and the reason this man was born blind was so that. This happened so that. So that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, that's a whole new category. This, this is a brand new theological concept for them. Jesus says, okay, guys, you want to, before we help him, we, you know, we should maybe meet his need first before we do that. You want to have a big theological discussion? I'll go there with you. Try to wrap your minds around this big thought. This guy's not blind because of his sin or his parents' sin, but this guy has been blind from birth to serve my purpose. Jesus is saying, you know, I know this sounds unfair on the surface. It sounds incredibly unfair that this guy would be blind for 20 or 30 years for my purpose. But some people, 
will come to faith because of this man's suffering. Thousands of years later, people are going to be talking about this man. Not all suffering is because of sin. Jesus isn't saying that, not at all. Sometimes it's part of God's plan to reach people. My suffering, your suffering, sometimes it's just because we're stupid. But sometimes, sometimes God says, I want to use your pain to reach a dying world. And it doesn't feel like an honor at the time. But what a privilege. So if you're wanting to take notes, here's the first lesson I think we learned about the father from the son in this man's story. And the thought is this. God sometimes chooses to display his power through our pain. God sometimes chooses to display his power through our pain. They had no concept for this. Their theology didn't teach them this. This was a brand new thought for them. That not all pain is punitive. It can instead be restorative and redemptive. That God sometimes uses or even causes pain for a divine purpose. Now, this can, can just be incredibly difficult for us to wrap our minds around. But isn't this true? Isn't some of the stories that we love best, that we know, they're about people who've come to understand that their pain has a greater purpose. The kind of stories that kind of draw us in are people who are going through something that we can't imagine we could ever go through. But we watch them walk through it, and we see how they somehow have this greater perspective. They somehow are trying to find a way to honor God for a bigger purpose in the midst of their suffering. Last fall, last fall, many of us were introduced to Lauren Hill. You might know who Lauren Hill is. She's the 19, I think she thinks she's 19, 19-year-old young woman who a little more than a year ago was diagnosed with a rare form of terminal cancer. But her story has made the news. It's been on national news. There's something about her story that just kind of drew us in, wasn't there? I mean, something about her story that found a way to touch so many of us. I remember sitting at home last November, sitting there, and a local TV station was playing a Mount St. Joseph's women's college basketball game. That had never happened for them, them before. They usually play in front of maybe 100 people. But on this day, they had to use Xavier's Arena. 10,000 people. It was sold out in a matter of minutes. 10,000 people showed up to watch Lauren Hill step onto the court courageously. It was dangerous. She stepped on the court very delicately. And I was in my living room watching that. Maybe you were in your living room watching that too. And as you watched her walk onto the court, and she made that first basket, as soon as she made it, the game stopped. The game stopped. The other team stood cheering. The crowd stood cheering. I didn't anticipate this. I was alone. I was in my living room standing, cheering. You might have been too. I don't think I was the only one. As I watched this moment just kind of take place right in front of my eyes. I probably wasn't the only one wiping tears away from my eyes. As she used her pain, as she stepped forward, and, and, and it was just an incredible moment of watching the, the, the courage of this young woman. A city, a state, a country, ESPN showed the highlights of Lauren Hill as she saw her illness. But what touched us wasn't just making a basket. What touched us was that she was using her illness to help others, and to honor God in the process. I found this quote that she gave recently so powerful. Listen to what she said. She said last January, talking about 2014, she said soon after she was diagnosed, I said to God, I'll do anything 
to be a voice for this cancer and all the kids that can't speak their symptoms. Parents are left baffled because they don't know what's wrong with their kids. Kids can't express what's happening to them. So watch this. She said, I prayed that I'd be the voice and that I'd do anything that gave me an opportunity to raise awareness and raise research money. She prayed, God, use my pain for your purpose. Display yourself in me in my pain. And she's done, this, she's done just that. They set a goal last fall, hoping to raise $1 million. I checked this week. Lauren Hill, because of her bravery, because of how courageous she's been in the midst of incredible suffering, has helped raise over $1.4 million for research to find a cure for the cancer from which, she sh- from which she suffers. I read through the article that was talking all that, that she's gone through, and she said there's been one quote that she's held on to throughout this entire time. Somebody gave her a mug soon after she was diagnosed, and it had a quote from C.S. Lewis on it, and she says this is the quote that has kind of propelled her forward. Listen to what C.S. Lewis wrote so many years ago. He wrote, Hardships often prepare ordinary people for an extraordinary destiny. And you know what? When you see people who have that kind of faith trust God in circumstances that we could never really even imagine, doesn't that just do something for your faith? I think you probably think the same thing I thought. Maybe you think as you hear that story, you've watched her story, you think, you know, I'm just glad to know that if and when I need that grace, I'm just glad to know that it exists. I'm just glad to know that in intense suffering that God shows up and he can even find a greater purpose than what I can even imagine. And Jesus, in this story of the blind man, he introduces the idea that there can be purpose in our pain and that God sometimes chooses to display his power in our pain, display his power in our weakness. That's the first truth we learned about God, but we're just getting started. The story is really going to pick up momentum here, and it just starts to seem ridiculous with what happens next. The humor in the story kind of starts here. Here's what happens in verse 6 and 7. After Jesus said all this, he goes over and he spit on the ground. He made some mud with the saliva, and he put it on the man's eyes. Now, Now, don't make this overly spiritual. Just make sure you get the picture here. Here is a young blind man doing what he does every day, sitting on a corner somewhere, begging. He's just sitting there, and then he hears some voices. He hears some people maybe 10, 20 feet away. He can't make out what they're saying, but he can hear them, and maybe they're talking about him. He's not sure, and he hears the voices, and then he hears one of the guys start to walk closer to him, and he can sense someone's presence, and then he hears this person. Don't over-spiritualize it. He hears this person spit on the ground not sure what's going on. He then hears this person kneel down. It sure sounds like they're playing in the mud. And then while he's trying to think about what's going on, suddenly mud is put in his eyes. This is, this is not a normal day for the blind man, right? He has no idea what's, what's going on. He has no idea that this is Jesus. I mean, talk about somebody kicking you when you're down, right? This guy's no clue what's going on. Here's what happens next. The voice, the person who's doing this, says, go, he told him. Wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed, and he came home seeing. This is absolutely bizarre, isn't it? 
I mean, safe to say a whole lot of bad things have happened to this guy in, in his life, but this is a new one. And I mean, I just wish we could kind of park here for a minute and just let all the suspense kind of build and start to wash over us. Because here is a guy who has never seen anything, never seen anything. And some stranger walks up to him, makes some mud and puts it in his eyes. Then somebody, because he's blind, he can't see, somebody has to take him by the hand and walk him down to the pool of Siloam. He has to wash. He does that, gets the mud out of his eyes, and suddenly he can see. I mean, are you kidding me? I mean, what a bizarre, strange, incredible, wonderful day. So he does probably what you would have done. He sees for the first time, and he runs home. He goes home to his parents, his family, his friends. He goes there, and the whole way, what is he thinking? The whole way, I mean, he's looking, oh, that's what my arm looks like. I mean, that's a cloud, that's a tree. He can't believe all that he's seeing. And every step along the way, he just gets more and more excited. He's thinking, my parents aren't going to believe it. We're going to have a party like we've never had before. It's going to be absolutely amazing. He finally makes it home, and look what happens next, verse 8 and 9. He gets home, and his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed, yeah, it's him. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I'm the man. It's me. Right? They're going back and forth. I think it's him. No, it can't be him. I'm pretty sure it's him. It looks just like him. Yeah, but he couldn't see before, but he can see now. I can see. It's me. I'm the guy. Right? He's with his family, his friends, his neighbors. He's expecting hugs and tears of joy, excitement, all this kind of stuff. Somebody's going to be throwing a party, of course, none, none of that stuff. So here's what happens next. They say, so in verse 10, well, how were your eyes opened? They demanded. And he replied, at least he doesn't know the details here. He's just kind of guessing a little bit. He said, well, um, the man, somebody told me it's some man named Jesus. He, he made some mud. He, he put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Salome and wash. So I went and washed. And then I could see. But who cares? I can see. I don't have a clue how this happened. I don't have a clue who this person is. I know it doesn't make any sense. Mud on your eyes is not the the healing power for blindness, right? I mean, that that doesn't heal blindness. But really, who cares? I can see. It's got to be what he's thinking, right? Well, then they asked him a really, really stupid question. Where is this man? They asked him. I don't know. He said, I didn't see which way he went. Right? You need to get my translation. It's, 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 it's a lot more. But I mean, I mean, come on. I mean, all these questions, right? So then, then it says next, they brought the man to the Pharisees who had been blind. Now, you've got to know this. In the, in the Old Testament, in, 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 in this time period, even here, if a healing took place, you'd go to the Pharisees. They'd check off a few things. And if, you know, having your sight wasn't enough to prove that you could now see, you could show them the certificate. Yeah, I used to be blind, but now I can see. Here's the proof, you know, the whole bit. But this is really like being taken to the principal's office for this guy. And this is where, if it's a movie, the soundtrack, the scary, ominous music would start to play now. Because here's what takes place next. It says, now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Oh, Jesus. You you should have known better. Jesus on a Sabbath? What were you thinking? Jesus, who do you think you are? I mean, come on. 
Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. And he said, okay, he put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, well, this man is not from God. Now, they haven't talked to Jesus. They don't have a lot of information to go on, but they're thinking he's kind of tipped his hand here. This man can't be from God because this man doesn't play by the rules. And if he came from God, then he'd play by the rules. He says, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Basically, it's like this. You see, we have this box, and God is here, right here in in our box, and we know everything God would do, everything God wouldn't do, and we know there's no way that God would come in and break the rules. We know everything there is to know about God. In fact, we really have God kind of under our control here in this box. There's no way this man can be from God because we know God unlike anyone else knows God, which is one of the reasons Jesus came which is one of the reasons why God sent his son in the form of a person and not as more information. Look at what takes place next. It says, but others asked, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. So so this argument, this debate is kind of taking place. The blind man's sitting here watching all this, and somebody says, he can't be from God because he breaks the rules, and somebody says, okay, I'm with you there, but you can't deny the fact that he can see. So the fact that he can see and that he says this Jesus healed him, maybe he is from God. So they're going back and forth. They're thinking somebody has to put all this together for us. Meanwhile, the blind guy is sitting off in the corner, and he's thinking, I don't care. Can't we have just a little party? I mean, can't we get somebody on a harp or a lyre, kind of play some music, a little bit of dancing? I mean, can't we do something? I can see. I was blind. Now I can see. Somebody get me some cake, right? I mean, I just want to have a party. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. And then I think he said it this way. Um, he's a prophet? I don't know. I haven't even seen him yet. I don't know what he looks like. I don't know where he went. I went home, thought, you know, big celebration, big party. I can see, incredible. We never thought this day would happen. I don't know who this man really is. I don't know why he healed me. I don't know if you're supposed to do it on the Sabbath. I can't answer all your questions, and I don't really care because I can see. Verse 18, they still didn't believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Now, we're kind of rushing through this, but imagine what this guy is doing, what he's his last half an hour, hour, two hours, whatever it's been. He's seen, like like we said before, trees and clouds, maybe animals. He's seen his own reflection. He's, He's never seen what he's looked like. He's seen that for the first time. He's seen his parents. He's seen his friends. He's seen his house. All these things, new things, things he's never experienced before. He never thought this day would come. All the emotions that have to be rushing through him And all these guys want to do is grill him with questions about Jesus and their theological assumptions about God. His parents show up. He gets a good look at his parents for the first time. But the Pharisees have some questions. They say, is this your son? They ask, is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? Now it starts to get tricky. They say, well, we know he's our son, the parents answered. And we know he was born blind, but how he can see now, 
or who opened his eyes. We don't know. And I'm thinking, we don't care, right? It said, ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. Now, his parents said this, verse 22, and this is really important, because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided. They already had decided, we know what God's like. We have this theological system, and God fits neatly within our system. And we know that God would have never done this. He's breaking the rules. There's no way this man's from God. So they already had decided, verse 22, the end of it, that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue, which may not sound like a big deal to us, but this isn't like trying to find a new church. Being kicked out of the synagogue is much bigger than that. This is going to impact where you can work. You might lose your job. It's going to impact the fact that now you can't go to the temple and make sacrifice for your sin. You're basically excommunicated. You're kicked out of your culture and your religion. Being kicked out of the, out of the synagogue impacted your entire life. And these religious leaders, I love those lines there, or those words, they had already decided. They had already decided that anybody who associated with Jesus They had already decided that anybody who even whispered the possibility of Jesus being the Messiah, they had already decided that if that's you, you're out. Verse 23 and 24 says, that's why his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So a second time, they summoned the man who had been blind, and they said, give glory to God by telling the truth. We know this man is a sinner. There has to be another explanation. This doesn't fit in to how we understand God, so there has to be a different, a better explanation, which is one of the reasons Jesus came. You see, there are some things that you will never understand about God apart from Jesus. If you want to have a better understanding of the Father, you have to have a better understanding of the Son. If you stop short of Jesus, if, if you don't include Jesus, you won't understand the Father. That's why Jesus was able to say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Love this quote from Andy Stanley. He said this. It's a great quote. He said, Jesus didn't claim to have the best explanation of God. He claimed to be the best explanation of God. Story continues. Go down to verse 25. He replies, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know, and real quick, small tangent. It's one of my favorite verses in in the entire Bible. We've talked about this before. But basically what this man is saying is that I can't answer all of your questions, but here's one thing I know. I don't have to understand everything to believe in something. I don't have to have every single question answered before I take a step of faith. Of all that's that's taken place, there's one thing. I can't answer your questions, but there's one thing I know, and the one thing I know trumps everything else that I don't know. One thing I know, he said. I was blind, but now I see. And it doesn't matter to me if God's supposed to act this way or not. 
It doesn't matter to me really who sent him. I don't know if Jesus is the Messiah, if he's a prophet, if he's just some kind of clever magician. I can't explain everything. I don't know the answers to all your questions, but there's one thing I do know. I was blind, and now I see. And that one undeniable truth trumps everything else that I don't know. Verse 26 says, then they asked him, all right, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've told you already, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? And then I think there's a pause here, because I think as he's thinking through this, he's saying, why do you want to hear it again? Then it dawns on him, ah, I figured it out. I know why. This is kind of like Pharisees. This is like your favorite bedtime story. You like this story so much that you just want to hear it again and again and again, so I'll go slow this time. And he said, real quick, the end of the verse, do you want to become his disciples too? I get it. He's like, oh, I finally figured it out. I get it. I'll go real slow. I'll add some exciting details. Maybe I'll embellish a little, a little bit. Let's just go ahead and watch Frozen for the 10th time in a row so we don't mess, you know, one little detail. He said, you guys love hearing this story, right? So, so here we go. And he tells them. So they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that's remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. In other words, guys, this one isn't hard to figure out. You're making this way more difficult than it has to be. I know I didn't go to seminary. I know I haven't been taught by the same people who taught you, but everybody else can figure this one out. Everybody else realizes the real answer to this question. He goes on. He says, we know, and even he's got some bad theology here. He says, we know that God doesn't listen to sinners. Yes, he does. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody's ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. In other words, again, guys, I can't explain all that's happened today. But we have all just seen, especially me, Something truly miraculous. And all you guys seem to care about is figuring out where does he come from? Who is he? Is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? Is he one of us? Is he against us? And you guys have missed the point. You've missed the fact that he's healed me and I can see. Isn't it true that somebody who came from God, from the Father, only somebody who came from him could do this? I realize, guys, it doesn't fit with your theological system. I realize that you don't really seem to have a category for this one. But maybe that just means your system's wrong. Maybe God's a little bit bigger than we imagine. Maybe God is even more merciful than we imagine him to be. Maybe God would show mercy to someone like me, even though you wouldn't show mercy to someone like me. To this, they replied in verse 34, They said, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Now, this next part's important. We said at the beginning that Jesus in this story is trying to show us the Father, giving us insight into who the Father is, that Jesus is giving us greater insight into the character of God. And this is big. I struggled all week with exactly how to say this, but here's kind of where I landed. Here's what we learn about the Father from the Son, and it's this. We learn that God's mercy is bigger than our theology. God's mercy is bigger 
than our theology, than how we think about God. Now listen carefully. This, 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 this can get tricky. But in every major religious system, in every major religious system, Christianity, pick your religious system, there are people who are on the inside and there are people who are on the outside. And it seems like, if you study religious history, that there's always, it seems like, one sin or one type of sin that puts people on the outside, that puts them beyond the reach of God's mercy. There's always, there's always one thing that God, you know, until they change, until they stop, until that's different, God's, God's mercy is really not for them. And that is beyond dangerous. It's just wrong. Because here's the fact. All of us, regardless of the sins that we've committed, we're in an adversarial position when it came to God. All of us were on the outside. And you know what's beautiful? God didn't let his own righteousness or how we understand his holiness to stop him from showing mercy. Jesus was showing us that mercy was never so much about us, but it was really all about the Father. Jesus was showing us this. Jesus was showing us that mercy should really inform our theology, which practically speaking means this. When our theology becomes an obstacle to mercy, maybe it's time to change our theology. If your theology limits who can receive God's grace, if your theology limits and places people on the outside because of what they've done, maybe, maybe you're believing wrong. And Christians can be just as guilty of, as this as anybody else. I mean, can you imagine this? Imagine this. If the church, just the church, throughout maybe just the last hundred years had gotten this right, what if the church would have said, my greatest call is to look at everyone as someone created in God's image, and I need to show them mercy. Think of it this way. Every person you ever come in contact with reminds God of himself. Every single one made in the image of God. Every single one. Which means every liberal, every conservative, every man, every woman, every prostitute, every absent father, every addict, every homosexual, every elderly person who, who lives their life all alone. People that we think are good people and people who really deep down we just can't stand have all been made in God's image. Can you imagine how our country how our world, how our life, how our family, how our church would be different if Christians would stand up and say, I don't agree with everything you stand for, but I sure believe in the one who stood in your place. And he wants to show you mercy, so I will show you mercy. How would your life look different if your view of God was informed by mercy? One more thing. And we don't have much time. We'll, we'll, we'll hit it quickly. One more thing we learned about the Father from Jesus in this story. And we learned this. We learned that God takes personal interest in individual people, which is huge for some of us. Because some of us quietly kind of wonder, 
if God really cares about what's going on in our life, if God really cares about the pain, about the questions, about the uncertainty that we face, with 7 billion people on the planet, does God really care about what's going on in my life? Does he really care about what I face? And you know one of the most powerful things I think about the ministry of Jesus is that Jesus chose to heal, let, let this sink in, one person at a time. Read through the Gospels. Just read through the Gospel of Mark. Notice how Jesus, you, you could read through a Gospel and continually just circle the word crowd or crowds every time you come to it. Crowds would press against Jesus. They would gather by the thousands. And Jesus could have, he was Jesus, he could have just kind of waved his hand and said a word and say you're healed and they would have got what they came for. But that's not who Jesus is. That's not who Jesus was trying to show us the Father is. Instead, Jesus went one by one, person by person, and met with people in their need because he was trying to show us that the Father cares about individual people. I love how the story wraps up. Look at it in 35 to 36. It says, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, you know what that means? That means he went looking for him. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus stopped whatever he was doing, and it had to be important because he was Jesus. He stopped whatever he was doing when he heard they threw the man out, and he went looking for him. Why, why would he do that? Because individuals matter to your heavenly Father. He went and found him, and he said, and, and this is great, it says, he said, the guy's never seen Jesus, but he's heard that voice. He's, he's never seen what Jesus looks like, but he knows that voice. He knows that's the voice that healed him. And Jesus says to him, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir, the man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Well, hold on. Don't you need an explanation first? Nope. Don't you care to know why you've been blind your entire life? Nope, don't care. I mean, wouldn't you like to know why this happened and, and, and what? Nope, nope, uh, no. See, here, here's the deal, Jesus. Your voice sounds familiar. Once I was blind and now I can see and you're the person who did it, you just tell me what to do. Whatever you tell me to do, if you say stand on one foot and rub my belly and pat my head, I'm all in. Whatever you say to do because once I was blind and now I can see and you're the guy who did it, just tell me what it is to do. Jesus says to him, you have now seen him. In fact, he, he's the one speaking with you. And you've seen him, and he's speaking with you because I tracked you down. It wasn't enough that my mercy met you. I needed to meet you personally. Then the man said to him, Lord, I believed. In the proper response, he worshiped him. Three things that Jesus came to show us about the Father. Three things that we would never have understood about the Father without Jesus. Because Jesus came in part to be the best explanation of God. So here's the challenge this week. We've got two weeks until Easter. Here's what I'd like to challenge you to do. Pick a gospel. Mark is the shortest. In fact, Mark has just enough chapters that you could just about finish it between now and Easter. Read through a gospel, like one chapter a day, and just look for ways that Jesus shows us the Father. Look for ways that Jesus came to be the best explanation of the Father. Because once upon a time, God came to live as one of us. God came to live among us. 
And one of the reasons he came was to show us the Father. One of the reasons he came was to show us a better understanding of who the Father is and to show us our worth in his eyes. Let me pray for you. Father, love you. Thank you for being our God. Thank you for being our Father. Thank you for never leaving us alone. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son, for coming as one of us, for being among us, for living with us, for showing us in the person of Jesus how much you care for us. Help us, God, to just not settle for some ambiguous thought of God or a higher power, but help us to lean in and to completely trust you as your Son, Jesus. Help us to not be satisfied with you until we understand you through your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Jesus, for coming, for living, for teaching, for taking my sin, for taking our sin to your cross, and for rising victoriously, bringing life and hope out of the grave. Thank you for showing us we have a Father who cares so much about us. It's in your name we pray, Jesus, to our Father. Amen.